Section 26 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. State of the Union Address. Theodore Roosevelt. December 3, 1907. Part 2. Those who fear, from any reason, the extension of federal activity will do well to study the history not only of the National Banking Act, but of the Pure Food Law, and notably the Meat Inspection Law recently enacted. The Pure Food Law was opposed so violently that its passage was delayed for a decade, yet it has worked unmixed and immediate good. The Meat Inspection Law was even more violently assailed, and the same men who now denounce the attitude of the national government in seeking to oversee and control the workings of interstate common carriers and business concerns, then asserted that we were discrediting and ruining a great American industry. Two years have not elapsed, and already it has become evident that the great benefit of law confers upon the public is accompanied by an equal benefit to the reputable packing establishments. The latter are better off under the law than they were without it, the benefit to interstate common carriers and business concerns from the legislation I advocate would be equally marked. Incidentally, in the passage of the Pure Food Law, the actions of the various state food and dairy commissioners showed in striking fashion how much good for the whole people results from the hearty cooperation of the federal and state officials in securing a given reform. It is primarily to the action of these state commissioners that we owe the enactment of this law. For they aroused the people, first to demand the enactment and enforcement of state laws on the subject, and then the enactment of the federal law, without which the state laws were largely ineffective. There must be the closest cooperation between the national and state governments in administering these laws. In my message to the Congress a year ago, I spoke as follows of the currency. I especially call your attention to the condition of our currency laws. The National Bank Act has ably served a great purpose in aiding the enormous business development of this country, and within ten years there has been an increase in circulation per capita from $21.41 to $33.08. For several years, evidence has been accumulating that additional legislation is needed. The recurrence of each crop season emphasizes the defects of the present laws. There must soon be a revision of them because to leave them as they are means to incur liability of business disaster. Since your body adjourned, there has been a fluctuation in the interest on call money from 2% to 30%, and the fluctuation was even greater during the preceding six months. The Secretary of the Treasury had to step in and by wise action put a stop to the most violent period of oscillation. Even worse than such fluctuation is the advance in commercial rates and the uncertainty felt in the sufficiency of credit even at high rates. All commercial interests suffer during each crop period. Excessive rates for coal money in New York attract money from the interior banks into the speculative field. This depletes the fund that would otherwise be available for commercial uses, and commercial borrowers are forced to pay abnormal rates so that each fall a tax in the shape of increased interest charges 
is placed on the whole commerce of the country. The mere statement of these facts shows that our present system is seriously defective. There is a need of change. Unfortunately, however, many of the proposed changes must be ruled from consideration because they are complicated, are not easy of comprehension, and tend to disturb existing rights and interests. We must also rule out any plan which would materially impair the value of the United States' 2% bonds now pledged to secure circulation, the issue of which was made under conditions peculiarly creditable to the Treasury. I do not press any especial plan. Various plans have recently been proposed by expert committees of bankers. Among the plans which are possibly feasible and which certainly should receive your consideration, is that repeatedly brought to your attention by the present Secretary of the Treasury, the essential features of which have been approved by many prominent bankers and businessmen. According to this plan, national banks should be permitted to issue a specified proportion of their capital in notes of a given kind, the issue to be taxed at so high a rate as to drive the notes back when not wanted in legitimate trade. This plan would not permit the issue of currency to give banks additional profits, but to meet the emergency presented by times of stringency. I do not say that this is the right system. I only advance it to emphasize my belief that there is a need for the adoption of some system, which shall be automatic and open to all sound banks, so as to avoid all possibility of discrimination and favoritism. Such a plan would tend to prevent the spasms of high money and speculation which now obtain in the New York market, for at present there is too much currency at certain seasons of the year, and its accumulation at New York tempts bankers to lend it at low rates for speculative purposes, whereas at other times, when the crops are being moved, there is urgent need for a large but temporary increase in the currency supply. It must never be forgotten that this question concerns businessmen generally quite as much as bankers, especially is this true of stockmen, farmers, and businessmen in the West, for at present, at certain seasons of the year, the difference in interest rates between the East and the West is from 6 to 10 percent, whereas in Canada, the corresponding difference is but 2 percent. Any plan must, of course, guard the interests of Western and Southern bankers, as carefully as it guards the interests of New York or Chicago bankers, and must be drawn from the standpoints of the farmer and the merchant no less than from the standpoints of the city banker and the country banker. I again urge the Congress the need of immediate attention to this matter. We need a greater elasticity in our currency, provided, of course, that we recognize the even greater need of a safe and secure currency. There must always be the most rigid examination by the national authorities. Provision should be made for an emergency currency. The emergency issue should, of course, be made with an effective guarantee and upon conditions carefully prescribed by the government. Such emergency issue must be based on adequate securities approved by the government and must be issued under a heavy tax. This would permit currency being issued when the demand for it was urgent while securing its requirement as the demand fell off. It is worth investigating to determine whether officers and directors of national banks should ever be allowed to loan to themselves. Trust companies should be subject to the same supervision as banks. 
legislation to this effect should be enacted for the District of Columbia and the Territories. Yet we must also remember that even the wisest legislation on the subject can only accomplish a certain amount. No legislation can, by any possibility, guarantee the business community against the results of speculative folly, any more than it can guarantee an individual against the results of his extravagance. When an individual mortgages his house to buy an automobile, he invites disaster. And when wealthy men, or men who pose as such, or are unscrupulously or foolishly eager to become such, indulge in reckless speculation, especially if it is accompanied by dishonesty. They jeopardize not only their own future, but the future of all their innocent fellow citizens, for they expose the whole business community to panic and distress. The income account of the nation is in a most satisfactory condition. For the six fiscal years ending with the 1st of July last, the total expenditures and revenues of the national government, exclusive of the postal revenues and expenditures, were in round numbers, revenues, $3,465,000,000, and expenditures, $3,275,000,000. The net excess of income over expenditures, including in the latter the 50 millions expended for the Panama Canal, was $190,000,000 for the six years, an average of about 31 millions a year. This represents an approximation between income and outgo, which it would be hard to improve. The satisfactory working of the present tariff laws has been chiefly responsible for this excellent showing. Nevertheless, there is an evident and constantly growing feeling among our people that the time is rapidly approaching when our system of revenue legislation must be revised. This country is definitely committed to the protective system and any effort to uproot it could not but cause widespread industrial disaster. In other words, the principle of the present tariff law could not with wisdom be changed. But in a country of such phenomenal growth as ours, it is probably well that every dozen years or so, the tariff laws should be carefully scrutinized, so as to see that no excessive or improper benefits are conferred thereby, the proper revenue is provided, and that our foreign trade is encouraged. There must always be, as a minimum, a tariff which will not only allow for the collection of an ample revenue, but which will at least make good the difference in cost of production here and abroad, that is, the difference in the labor cost here and abroad, for the well-being of the wage worker, must ever be a cardinal point of American policy. The question should be approached purely from a business standpoint, both the time and the manner of the change being such as to arouse the minimum of agitation and disturbance in the business world, and to give the least play for selfish and factional motives. The sole consideration should be to see that the sum total of changes represents the public good. This means that the subject cannot, with wisdom, be dealt with in the year preceding a presidential election, because, as a matter of fact, experience has conclusively shown that at such a time it is impossible to get men to treat it from the standpoint of the public good. In my judgment, the wise time to deal with the matter is immediately after such election. When our tax laws are revised, 
the question of an income tax and an inheritance tax should receive the careful attention of our legislatures. In my judgment, both of these taxes should be a part of our system of federal taxation. I speak diffidently about the income tax because one scheme for an income tax was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, while in addition, it is a difficult tax to administer in its practical working, and great care would have to be exercised to see that it was not evaded by the very men whom it was most desirable to have taxed. For, if so evaded, it would of course be worse than no tax at all. As the least desirable of all taxes is the tax which bears heavily upon the honest as compared with the dishonest man. Nevertheless, a graduated income tax of the proper type would be a desirable feature of federal taxation and it is to be hoped that one may be devised which the Supreme Court will declare constitutional. The inheritance tax, however, is both a far better method of taxation and far more important for the purpose of having the fortunes of the country bear in proportion to their increase in size a corresponding increase and burden of taxation. The government has the absolute right to decide as to the terms upon which a man shall receive a bequest or device from another, and this point in the devolution of property is especially appropriate for the imposition of a tax. Laws imposing such taxes have repeatedly been placed upon the national statute books, and as repeatedly declared constitutional by the courts. And these laws contained the progressive principle that is, after a certain amount is reached, the bequest or gift, in life or death, is increasingly burdened, and the rate of taxation is increased in proportion to the remoteness of blood of the man receiving the bequest. These principles are recognized already in the leading civilized nations of the world. In Great Britain, all the estates worth $5,000 or less are practically exempt from death duties, while the increase is such that when an estate exceeds five millions of dollars in value and passes to a distant kinsman or stranger in blood, the government receives, all told, an amount equivalent to nearly a fifth of the whole estate. In France, so much of an inheritance as exceeds ten million dollars pays over a fifth to the state if it passes to a distant relative. The German law is especially interesting to us because it makes the inheritance tax an imperial measure while allotting to the individual states of the empire a portion of the proceeds, and permitting them to impose taxes in addition to those imposed by the imperial government. Small inheritances are exempt, but the tax is so sharply progressive that when the inheritance is still not very large, provided it is not in agricultural or a forest land, it is taxed at the rate of 25% if it goes to distant relatives. There is no reason why, in the United States, the national government should not impose inheritance taxes, in addition to those imposed by the states, and when we last had an inheritance tax, about one-half of the states levied such taxes concurrently with the national government, making a combined maximum rate, in some cases as high as 25%. The French law has one feature which is to be heartily commended. The progressive principle is so applied that each higher rate, 
is imposed only on the excess above the amount subject to the next lower rate, so that each increase of rate will apply only to a certain amount above a certain maximum. The tax should, if possible, be made to bear more heavily upon those residing without the country than within it. A heavy progressive tax upon a very large fortune is in no way such a tax upon thrift or industry as alike would be on a small fortune. No advantage comes either to the country as a whole or to the individuals inheriting the money by permitting the transmission of their entirety of the enormous fortunes which would be affected by such a tax. And as an incident to its function of revenue-raising, such a tax would help to preserve a measurable equality of opportunity for the people of the generations growing to manhood. We have not the slightest sympathy with that socialistic idea which would try to put laziness, thriftlessness, and inefficiency on a par with industry, thrift, and efficiency, which would strike to break up not merely private property, but what is far more important, the home, the chief prop upon which our whole civilization stands. Such a theory, if ever adopted, would mean the ruin of the entire country, a ruin which would bear heaviest upon the weakest, upon those least able to shift for themselves. But proposals for legislation such as this herein advocated are directly opposed to this class of socialistic theories. Our aim is to recognize what Lincoln pointed out, the fact that there are some respects in which men are obviously not equal, but also to insist that there should be an equality of self-respect and of mutual respect, an equality of rights before the law, and at least an approximate equality in the conditions under which each man obtains the chance to show the stuff that is in him when compared to his fellows. A few years ago, there was loud complaint that the law could not be invoked against wealthy offenders. There is no such complaint now. The course of the Department of Justice during the last few years has been such as to make it evident that no man stands above the law, that no corporation is so wealthy that it cannot be held to account. The Department of Justice has been as prompt to proceed against the wealthiest malefactor, whose crime was one of greed and cunning, as to proceed against the agitator who incites to brutal violence. Everything that can be done under the existing law, and with the existing state of public opinion, which so profoundly influences both the courts and juries, has been done. But the laws themselves need strengthening in more than one important point. They should be made more definite, so that no honest man can be led unwittingly to break them, and so that the real wrongdoer can be readily punished. Moreover, there must be the public opinion back of the laws, or the laws themselves will be of no avail. At present, while the average juryman undoubtedly wishes to see trusts broken up, and is quite ready to find the corporation itself, he is very reluctant to find the facts proven beyond a reasonable doubt when it comes to sending to jail a member of the business community for indulging in practices which are profoundly unhealthy, but which, unfortunately, the business community has grown to recognize as well-nigh normal. Both the present condition of the law and the present temper of juries render it a task of extreme difficulty 
to get at the real wrongdoer in any such case, especially by imprisonment. Yet it is from every standpoint far preferable to punish the prime offender by imprisonment rather than to fine the corporation with the attendant damage to stockholders. The two great evils in the execution of our criminal laws today are sentimentality and technicality. For the latter, the remedy must come from the hands of the legislatures, the courts, and the lawyers. The other must depend for its cure upon the gradual growth of a sound public opinion, which shall insist that regard for the law and the demands of reason shall control all other influences and emotions in the jury box. Both of these evils must be removed, or public discontent with the criminal law will continue. Instances of abuse in the granting of injunctions in labor disputes continue to occur, and the resentment in the minds of those who feel that their rights are being invaded and their liberty of action and of speech unwarrantably restrained continues likewise to grow. Much of the attack on the use of the process of injunction is wholly without warrant, but I am constrained to express the belief that for some of it there is warrant. This question is becoming more and more one of prime importance, and unless the courts will themselves deal with it in effective manner, it is certain ultimately to demand some form of legislative action. It would be most unfortunate for our social welfare if we should permit many honest and law-abiding citizens to feel that they had just cause for regarding our courts with hostility. I earnestly commend to the attention of the Congress this matter, so that some way may be devised which will limit the abuse of injunctions and protect those rights which from time to time it unwarrantably invades. Moreover, discontent is often expressed with the use of the process of injunction by the courts, not only in labor disputes, but where state laws are concerned. I refrain from discussion of this question, as I am informed that it will soon receive the consideration of the Supreme Court. The federal courts must, of course, decide ultimately what are the respective spheres of state and nation in connection with any law, state or national, and they must decide definitely and finally in matters affecting individual citizens, not only as to the rights and wrongs of labor, but as to the rights and wrongs of capital. And the national government must always see that the decision of the court is put into effect. The process of injunction is an essential adjunct of the court's doing its work well. And as preventative measures are always better than remedial, the wise use of this process is from every standpoint commendable but where it is recklessly or unnecessarily used, the abuse should be censored, above all by the very men who are properly anxious to prevent any effort to shear the courts of this necessary power. The court's decision must be final. The protest is only against the conduct of individual judges in needlessly anticipating such final decision, or in the tyrannical use of what is nominally a temporary injunction to accomplish what is in fact a permanent decision. The loss of life and limb from the railroad accidents in this country has become appalling. It is a subject of which the national government should take supervision. It might be well to begin by providing for a federal inspection of interstate railroads, somewhat along the lines of federal inspection of steamboats, 
although not going so far. Perhaps at first all that would be necessary to have would be some officer whose duty would be to investigate all accidents on interstate railroads and report in detail the causes thereof. Such an officer should make it his business to get into close touch with railroad operating men, so as to become thoroughly familiar with every side of the question, the idea being to work along the lines of the present steamboat inspection law. The national government should be a model employer. It should demand the highest quality of service from each of its employees, and it should care for all of them properly in return. Congress should adopt legislation providing limited but definite compensation for accidents to all workmen, within the scope of the federal power, including employees of navy yards and arsenals. In other words, a model employer's liability act, far-reaching and thoroughgoing, should be enacted which should apply to all positions, public and private, over which the national government has jurisdiction. The number of accidents to wage workers, including those that are preventable and those that are not, has become appalling in the mechanical, manufacturing, and transportation operations of the day. It works grim hardship to the ordinary wage worker and his family to have the effect of such an accident fall solely upon him. And, on the other hand, there are whole classes of attorneys who exist only by inciting men who may or may not have been wronged to undertake suits for negligence. As a matter of fact, a suit for negligence is generally an inadequate remedy for the person injured, while it often causes altogether disproportionate annoyance to the employer. The law should be made such that the payment for accidents by the employer would be automatic, instead of being a matter for lawsuits. Workmen should receive certain and definite compensation for all accidents in industry, irrespective of negligence. The employer is the agent of the public, and on his own responsibility, and for his own profit he serves the public. When he starts in motion agencies which create risks for others, he should take all the ordinary and extraordinary risks involved and the risk he thus at the moment assumes will ultimately be assumed, as it ought to be, by the general public. Only in this way can the shock of the accident be diffused, instead of falling upon the man or woman least able to bear it, as is now the case. The community at large should share the burdens as well as the benefits of industry. By the proposed law, employers would gain a desirable certainty of obligation and get rid of litigation to determine it, while the workman and his family would be relieved from a crushing load. With such a policy would come increased care, and accidents would be reduced in number. The national laws providing for employers' liability on railroads engaged in interstate commerce and for safety appliances, as well as for diminishing the hours any employee of a railroad should be permitted to work, should all be strengthened Wherever in actual practice they have shown weakness, they should be kept on the statute books in thoroughgoing form. The constitutionality of the Employer's Liability Act passed by the preceding Congress has been carried before the courts. In two jurisdictions, the law has been declared unconstitutional, and in three jurisdictions, 
its constitutionality has been affirmed. The question has been carried to the Supreme Court. The case has been heard by the tribunal, and a decision is expected at an early date. In the event that the court should affirm the constitutionality of the act, I urge further legislation along the lines advocated in my message to the preceding Congress. The practice of putting the entire burden of loss of life or limb upon the victim or the victim's family is a form of social injustice in which the United States stands in unenviable prominence. In both our federal and state legislation, we have, with few exceptions, scarcely gone farther than the repeal of the fellow-servant principle of the old law of liability, and in some of our states, even this slight modification of a completely outgrown principle has not yet been secured. The legislation of the rest of the industrial world stands out in striking contrast to our backwardness in this respect. Since 1895, practically every country of Europe, together with Great Britain, New Zealand, Australia, British Columbia, and the Cape of Good Hope, has enacted legislation embodying, in one form or another, the complete recognition of the principle which places upon the employer the entire trade risk in the various lines of industry. I urge upon the Congress the enactment of a law which will at the same time bring federal legislation up to the standard already established by all the European countries, and which will serve as a stimulus to the various states to perfect their legislation in this regard. The Congress should consider the extension of the eight-hour law. The constitutionality of the present law has recently been called into question, and the Supreme Court has decided that the existing legislation is unquestionably within the powers of the Congress. The principle of the eight-hour day should as rapidly and as far as practicable be extended to the entire work carried on by the government, and the present law should be amended to embrace contracts on those public works, which the present wording of the Act has been construed to exclude. The general introduction of the eight-hour day should be the goal toward which we steadily tend, and the government should set the example in this respect. Strikes and lockouts with their attendant loss and suffering continue to increase. For the five years ending December 31, 1905, the number of strikes was greater than those in any previous ten years, and was double the number in the preceding five years. These figures indicate the increasing need of providing some machinery to deal with this class of disturbance in the interest alike of the employer, the employee, and the general public. I renew my previous recommendation that the Congress favorably consider the matter of creating the machinery for compulsory investigation of such industrial controversies as are of sufficient magnitude and of sufficient concern to the people of the country as a whole to warrant the federal government in taking action. The need for some provision for such investigation was forcibly illustrated during the past summer. A strike of telegraph operators seriously interfered with telegraphic communication, causing great damage to business interests and serious inconvenience to the general public. Appeals were made, to me, from many parts of the country, from city councils, from boards of trade, 
from chambers of commerce, and from labor organizations, urging that steps be taken to terminate the strike. Everything that could, with any propriety, be done by a representative of the government was done, without avail. And for weeks the public stood by and suffered without recourse of any kind. Had the machinery existed, and had there been authority for compulsory investigation of the dispute, the public would have been placed in possession of the merits of the controversy, and public opinion would probably have brought about a prompt adjustment. Each successive step creating machinery for the adjustment of labor difficulties must be taken with caution, but we should endeavor to make progress in this direction. The provisions of the Act of 1898, creating the Chairman of the Interstate Commerce Commission and the Commissioner of Labor, a board of mediation in controversies between interstate railroads and their employees has for the first time been subjected to serious tests within the past year, and the wisdom of the experiment has been fully demonstrated. The creation of a board for compulsory investigation, in cases where mediation fails and arbitration is rejected, is the next logical step in a progressive program. End of section 26.